Hello, friends, and welcome to the Axe of the Blood God podcast. It is an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Nadia Oxford. Cat Bailey is not here. You know that scene in, in the wall where, like, the kids go crazy and burn the teacher alive? Uh, it was a little bit like that. Actually, no, Cat's just taking a very well-deserved rest, a very well-deserved vacation. We wish her all the best. She'll be back next time. And uh, for now, I'm actually joined by a very good, very old friend of mine, Andrew Vestal. And, and please say hi, Andrew, and thank you for coming on the show. Hi, it's uh, great to be here today. I love the podcast, I love the RPGs, and uh, I'm happy to talk about, um, you know, I, I'm going to give away what we're talking about, uh, you know, what it was like to be there at the very dawn of internet fandom for RPGs here on the internet. Yes, uh, just to give you all a little bit of background, uh, Andrew Vestal's site was, I think, the first site I ever visited when I learned how to use the internet. Uh, you were running the unofficial Squaresoft homepage, as I recall, mm-hmm. and uh, a friend of mine, who I'm actually still friends with, taught me how to use the internet in, in, in my school. I'll get more into that in a bit, but yes, the first thing I, I can't even say Google because there's no Google back then, the first thing I quote-unquote net searched was Final Fantasy, and your site came up, and that was my my debut into uh, the erosion of my life and <laughs> the buildup of my internet presence, if you want to call it that. So uh, the fact that I'm sitting here and talking to you about these things is a little bit uncanny to me, but I'm really glad it's happening. Oh, no no problem. And it's funny you, you mentioned that, because my, my supervillain origin story, as it were, is exactly the same, except... I managed to get on the internet so early that I, I net searched Final Fantasy and nothing came up, if you can imagine oh such a time. Oh my god. <laughs> um, wow. And that's, I'm just picturing a wasteland. Yeah, and that's literally why I started a page about Final Fantasy, because nobody was talking about Final Fantasy on the internet yet. <laughs> oh wow. It's like, have you ever read The Drifting Classroom when you see the, 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 oh, the yeah. wasteland of like piles of sand? That was... <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> that was uh, it. We'll, we'll talk about what things were actually like that later, but but definitely it was it was a good time to get out there and stake your claim. <laughs> there was a lot of No kidding. Holy <laughs> moly. <laughs> okay. Well before we get into that, we have a little bit of news to get over, and I will also be doing a little bit of housekeeping. Acts of the Blood God is an independent RPG podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. On Twitter, find me at Naughty Oxford. Find Kat at the underscore catbot. We are a Patreon-sponsored podcast, and your patriot your patronage keeps the lights on. For a dollar pledge, you access our hopping Discord full of great people and U.S. Gamer comment thread refugees. If you used to be someone who frequented ref- uh, U.S. Uh, gamer, maybe you'll find a good home there. I hope you do. For $5, you get access to our Television of the Blood God podcast, where we examine the supplementary media surrounding RPGs. We recently finished watching and commenting on Netflix's The Witcher, so please go check that out. For $10, you get access to the Pantheon of the Blood God podcast, wherein we dissect a beloved RPG and determine if it deserves to be acknowledged as one of the genre's best. We already had uh, deep dives into Skies of Arcadia and Lufia 2, and I'm not sure if it'll be up at the time of this, at uh, the same time as this podcast, but... We will have Final Fantasy VIII up very soon, so please look forward to that. That's great, because that's the best Final Fantasy. I just got to put it up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Cat's not here, so someone's got to rest. <laughs> yeah, you and Cat are definitely kindred spirits in that regard. Uh, spoilers, um, I just did not enjoy it very much. I tried. I, I really did try my best, but uh, I just couldn't get into it. On to a little bit of news before we start talking about the the great internet dead zone of the 90s. Uh, first of all, and foremost, Anthem is dead. Did you ever play Anthem, Andrew? I did not. 
but I know people who did and who actually uh, enjoyed it. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's it's sad to hear it won't be continuing. I think it's understandable given the audience. Um, but I think it's one of uh -huh. those games that just didn't click. You know, it had a mix of good things and bad things, but the bad things were just too bright in people's minds to for it to ever find that critical audience that needed to succeed. Yeah, yeah. And I know, of course, there are plans to kind of do a, a Realm Reborn to it and, and resurrect it and make it better than ever. But obviously those plans have been scuppered. I know. I wonder if – I think I was thinking about it and I think, number one, of course, EA is a very different company from Square Enix in many ways. I also think that Final Fantasy XIV 1.0, as horrible as it was, it had – people who desperately did want to succeed, see it succeed. It had its community, it had its fan base, and those were the people who kept the game alive and kept Square Enix funded so that they could actually do A Realm Reborn. And I don't really see EA putting that kind of effort into fostering a community that cares enough about Anthem to keep the lights on. No. And it's, it's funny you mentioned Square Enix, because while Final Fantasy XIV is doing really well for them, uh, you know, they're sitting on Marvel's Avengers uh, as well right. and that that's another kind of stillborn game as a service where again like anthem you know like there's you know people like the combat in avengers people like the flying in anthem what they don't like is being strung along in a game as a service with drip 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 loot yeah quests grinding for 300 hours in order to actually have any you know the, the core mechanics are fun. It's the metagame. It's the game on top of that that's, that's driving people away. Um, and I, I would hope that uh, whatever the Anthem team works on next, that they are allowed to focus on their strengths. And, not you know, I mean, some, something you see just so often is, is, is business plan first game design, and, and that never makes a good game. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, the good news about that is I believe the Anthem team has been dissolved into the uh, Dragon Age 4 team. And we're going to say here that Anthem died so that Dragon Age may live because oh apparently, according to a report by Jason Schreier at Bloomberg, EA had plans to make the latest Dragon Age a, another freaking games as a service thing. And the failure of Anthem has made them say, uh, you know what, maybe we should back off on that and... Dragon Age 4 will be a single-player game, thankfully. It's tough, but you know, sometimes, especially when you're in the C-suite, you got to touch the stove to learn that it's hot. And so maybe this will, <laughs> maybe this will actually help drive them towards gameplay-first design that, that excites people. Um, by the way, you mentioned Dragon Age. I learned the worst piece of Dragon Age trivia this week, and so I'm, I'm making it my life's duty to make sure everybody knows. Do you know why the world of Dragon Age is called Thetis? No. Because it is the Dragon Age setting. Oh my god! <laughs> literally, that's terrible. Literally, that's how they named it. So now I'm our, dumber for knowing that. We we all are. It's one of those things you can never <laughs> unlearn. <laughs> May God have mercy on all our souls. So, but no, I, I, I I'm a big fan of uh, of the Dragon Age series. Not as much as Mass Effect, but I I do enjoy them and. Um, I, I really liked the last one. Uh, I felt like it kind of hewed more towards the kind of narrative RPG. Uh, the, the, the things that I like about playing RPGs, I felt like it mm -hmm. tried to split the difference between it's, you know, the, the first one is, is basically a straight up uh, computer RPG, CRPG. And then the second You're one, right. the second one was an interesting experiment that didn't quite work out. And with the, the third one, I feel like they kind of 
had a lot of the the narrative and plotting design of Japanese RPGs, which I really enjoy, kind of brought into an an open world uh, CRPG environment. So knowing that they get to focus on single player, I'm I'm really hopeful they can continue kind of pushing that series in an interesting direction because I do think it's one that's just gotten better and better with each installment. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what comes of all this. I'm really glad that they were able to drop the whole games as a service thing. And I'm actually extremely glad that EA, I don't want to call them benevolent by any means, but <laughs> I do want to say I am glad they seem to be learning lessons because what they could have done was just, I mean, everyone feared that they were going to just dissolve Bioware and, and shoo them away, especially since Andromeda and uh, Anthem were such disasters. I think it's worth pointing out not not just that it's Anthem's failure, but it's the success of Jedi Fallen Order. Um, it's the, right. It was kind of the one-two punch of that Star Wars game from Respawn was really good and completely outperformed their expectations. And and so those two things together are what gave them the confidence to say, okay, we'll allow Dragon Age Four to be a single-player RPG. And of course. That's what the game team had wanted to make <laughs> from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, so whenever a team is making a game that they believe in, it's always going to turn out better than when they're making a game that marketing and executives have told them to make. Absolutely. So there, there's a, it's still very, very early days, but there is a lot of reason to have some hope in, in the new Dragon Age, and uh, we'll see what comes of it all. But uh, in the meantime, we'll talk about very briefly an RPG that is out, I think, or coming out. By the time this episode is available, it'll be out. Uh, Bravely Default 2. Are you a Bravely Default fan? Um, I'm afraid not. I know it's one of those things I should be really into. I loved Octopath mm. Traveler. Um, so do I. So, like, uh, there's definitely a place for that traditional uh, JRPG redo in, in, in my heart, but for whatever reason, the first Bravely Default just did not click with me. That's fair. Um, Bravely Default 2, I, I was noticing kind of an interesting trend here. At the time of this recording, it's around 77 on Metacritic, which is still an extremely good score, very good score. Of course, if you're looking at like the game review scale, it's a, it's a massive failure because not at 90%. But the point is, it got a little bit more of a mixed reception than the first game did. I think the first game is sitting at 86% on the DS, and that was 2012. And I was thinking of the reasons why, and a lot of the criticisms for... Brave the Default 2 is is grindy. It has RPG tropes that you know aren't really that charming. Graphics look good, at least. Uh, I'm sure the soundtrack is amazing. I would hope it is. But uh, the point is, the original Brave the Default, as I recall, had many of the same things going on. In fact, people say there isn't much difference between the first game and the second game. But it was kind of praised for that back in the day because we were so JRPG deprived in 2012 that Brave the Default became uh, a really a, a, a huge surprise hit on Square, so they were they were as shocked as anyone. And the fact that we were just like so desperate for those tropes back then. No, it's a, it's absolutely hard to imagine now, but I remember this period between. I kind of think of it as the period between Persona Four and Persona Five. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's but, a good way to think of it. But just uh, I was just talking to a friend where 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 there were all these think pieces like, you know, Japanese games are dead. Japanese developers mm. just can't keep mm. up with modern game design. The JRPG is dead. And if it, right. I don't know if the JRPG was dead, but they certainly weren't being published here, whereas now there's, you know, 500 content hours of content a month coming out more than any single human being yeah. could ever uh, 
ever uh ever play through but but those were uh it was it was it was a huge and real dip in terms of the accessibility of the games they just weren't being made and they weren't coming to the US and i think uh sorry to pontificate a little bit further but i think a lot of mm-hmm. that was because during those years the japanese market had pivoted to the 3DS and the PSP and yes. so much and those uh consoles just were not as popular in the west and so we you know even if those games were being made uh, you know, things like Monster Hunter, we just weren't seeing them to the same degree or the, of, or the same level of popularity over here because we weren't seeing the same install base or the same play pattern. Absolutely. This is something Kat and I went over in one of our console quests, probably several of our RPG console quests, wherein we look back at the RPGs on each system uh, across the years. And going back to our PlayStation 3 console quest, which was quite recent, we were noting how it was really a desperate time for JRPGs in general and yes, this would have been a this would have been an era when something like Bravely Default, which is a very charming game, I love it very much, uh, would have been uh, well received despite being a little bit tropey in parts. And despite making you play the whole game three times, there is that. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if Bravely Default two makes you do that. I don't think End Layer made you do that. And I liked End Layer quite a bit. It was one of the. I don't think it was very popular, but I, I did enjoy it. No, I'm sad. I'm sad I wasn't here last week because I'm I'm just kind of nodding along to Bravely Default, but but Triangle Strategy is the one that I'm like yes. Oh yeah, like have you played the demo for that yet? Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I haven't got I haven't had a chance to play the demo yet, but it looks really like I'm hearing it's uh, more Ogre Battle than Final Fantasy Tactics. So um, I don't know. I love have... I love Tactics Ogre. Uh, I love it's it's a. Uh, it has has some good quality of life stuff in there for mm-hmm. um, which you know you would expect if you're doing this in 2021, um, but but definitely it 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 looks to be uh, for strategy RPGs what Octopath Traveler was for guys on the right, boss on the left uh, <laughs> style RPGs. And, and, I like that subgenre. <laughs> and so uh, you know I'm I'm really excited to see to see what they do there. Um, I mean, and the the demo was just. You know, it's a demo, so you're dropped into the deep end of the story battle that's probably eight hours into the actual game and have no idea what's going on. But the yeah, the the visuals, the mechanics, the music, the the character designs. Gosh, I just love the character designs. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, this is another, as you said, this is a, a another game by the Octopath slash Breathe Default team. They will be sending out a survey as they always do, and. They uh, they have done some amazing improvements to their to their games through these surveys. So uh, I, I would recommend participating if you if anyone who who has played the demo like go ahead and do that. It's always worth it. Our third news topic and undoubtedly the the biggest one, Pokemania. Pokemon had a 25th anniversary event last week, and holy moly, we got a lot of news. Most of it pertaining to the Sinnoh region, aka Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, aka not really my favorites, but I am kind of looking forward to what we got here. We have, uh, first of all, a remake of uh, Diamond and Pearl, which we knew was coming. Uh, shoot, I'm forgetting the, the the subtitles they have here, like Shiny Pearl, Dazzling Diamond. I, I don't sparkling, sparkling Diamond? I don't know. Uh, sparkling. Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, I'm actually a lot more interested in the uh, uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus, I believe it was called. Uh, yes. Uh, which is... Uh, gosh, it looks like it's an open-world Pokemon game, which everyone has been lusting for since the beginning of time, since before they knew what an open-world <laughs> game was. 
so, Andrew, did you watch this presentation, and what did you think about these announcements? Uh, well, the good news is I have a six-year-old daughter who's also into Pokemon, so we were up, we were up at 7 a.m. Uh, watching the, the presentation in real time here on the West Coast. Um, and yeah, the, the presentation uh, was great. Um, I know it's a little bit outside your purview, but the new Pokemon Snap looks awesome. Like, I loved it on Nintendo it 64, does. and they've added a bunch of great stuff there. Um, Diamond Pearl, um, you, I don't know if you, you mentioned, it has kind of a, a Link's Awakening style TV uh, art style to it, which has been yes. released to mixed reception by Pokemon fans online. Let's go with that. As usual. <laughs> As usual, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it looks cute. You know, uh, something that some, I think so. Some, something that some people don't want to admit is that Pokemon games are for children. Like, we all love them. <laughs> we all play them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but... <laughs> Ultimately, the, the audience is, you know, kids 6 to 15 or whatever, and the Pokemon company has been doing this for 25 years and understands they have to keep bringing new Pokemon fans in or of they course. don't have an audience. Um, but uh, that looks great. And the, the, uh, the Legends game looks um, just absolutely awesome. You know, like you mentioned, it, it, it's open world. Um, and it's also what I find really awesome is it, it's a historical Pokemon uh, game. Yes. It's... Uh, set, I think, a few hundred years before the events of most of the other Pokemon games. Um, and it has kind of that old-timey uh, Japanese feel to the, the costumes and the character designs and the UI and so forth, which is, you know, very different from the uh, techno, horny aesthetic that we see <laughs> in the usual mainstream Pokemon games. That is very interesting that you mentioned that because thinking about it, there have been many instances where we hear about history in the Pokemon universe and certain wars and certain laws. And uh, more than one person actually wondered if we're going to hear or learn anything about that really controversial bit about people marrying Pokemon that was retranslated <laughs> for the West. But yeah, everyone's kind of like, so uh, are we going to see uh, Mr. Mime get it on with? Oh, God, that's just, that's so horrible to even think about. I'm, I'm going to stop there. But <laughs> the point is, yes, I am interested to see where we are going with Pokemon from a historical context. And it also fits just the, the aesthetic they're going for, because if since this isn't a another mainline Pokemon, technically, they're, they're kind of free to experiment and do that whole open area that they dabbled with in Sword and Shield and just really make a whole game out of it. And I will say I'm a little annoyed at people saying, oh, it just looks like Breath of the Wild. It's just Breath of the Wild, as if we went through Breath of the Wild throwing Pokeballs at Moblins. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> yeah, not, not only that, like, like Breath of the Wild invented the outdoors. You know, Breath of the Wild yeah. invented a feeling of exploration. Like the whole, yeah, I like, mean, you know, since the first Legend of Zelda, Miyamoto has been trying to recapture that feeling of wandering around in the fields outside his childhood home in Kyoto. So like, you know, Breath of the Wild does not have a monopoly on expansive vistas and beautiful greenery. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. And the developers of Breath of the Wild have admitted outright they were inspired by The Witcher 3 and Skyrim, which are two very exploration-heavy games. Like, it's not exactly a secret that open worlds have been around since, gosh, forever. You mentioned the original Legend of Zelda, and even though we don't think of it as an open world, you can pretty much go anywhere in that game. And if you die, it's it's your own lookout because you have a, a cheap-ass wooden sword and the Lionels have, like, a, a, these, these like, daggers that they can shoot at you and spear you, so... Yeah, I mean, I never, 
I never thought of it as an open world game before necessarily, but like the ability to like sequence break and get items out of order and to do, mm-hmm. the, you know, you can do the dungeons out of order too. Like I almost always do dungeon six after dungeon seven when I play that game. Um, cause I, oh, really? cause I hate the wizards. They get safe. Oh, for wizards suck. <laughs> Them and dark nuts. I can't stand anytime I run into the dungeons that have those guys. I'm just like, okay, I'm out. Thanks. So, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> so, so something I think is really cool about uh, legends is that your starter Pokemon are actually from three different regions. Um, right. They are supposedly, you know, brought by an explorer who has, you know, gone to these different regions and brought them back to the Sinnoh region. Um, but to me, that really uh, is evocative of kind of the closed era of Japan, mm. uh, you know, when they were um, not really interacting with the outside world, with the exception of, like, the, the island of Dejima, where the Dutch traders were allowed to to go, but they couldn't go on the actual mainland, etc. Um, yeah. so but, but, but basically, the idea that, like, um, the region itself is, is going to have these little hints of the other regions there, which in some ways makes it feel even more closed than if it didn't because it, it creates the sense of oddness and weirdness that you don't understand everything about the world of Pokemon yet. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, I mean, Sinnoh is based on, is it Hokkaido it's based on? Yes, Hokkaido. So I'm actually curious to see how that translates into the not only the Japanese area you're referring to, but also Pokemon as well, because I think Hokkaido was, I, I don't know a whole lot about Japanese history. I don't know history very well, period, but... Hokkaido was kind of unified a lot later than the rest of Japan. Wasn't I was, was going to so. say, like, like historically, I think that this Legends game is based earlier than the mainstream Pokemon uh, timeline than Hokkaido was actually uh, actually in, not inhabited by because the Ainu were there, and that's very important to remember. But before kind of mainstream mm-hmm. Japanese culture moved up there, the uh, one of the really crazy things about Sapporo, the capital city of uh-huh. Hokkaido. Um, is it's on a grid system because it was laid out by a white guy in like 1900. <laughs> um, it's the only place. Really? It is the only place in Japan I've ever been where the streets go north, south, east, west. <laughs> and the, wow. And the uh, it's, it's actually kind of funny because everything, there's a big clock tower in the center of Hokkaido and, and all street addresses in Hokkaido are expressed as North 3, East 2. It's, it's basically like an RPG map. <laughs> where you, That's amazing. Um, but yeah, the, the joke slash not joke is that, you know, people didn't move to Hokkaido until uh, insulation and central heating were available for their homes. <laughs> and so the, uh, the Sinnoh region being set a few hundred years before that um, makes it slightly ahistorical relative to the region that it's based on. Um, but... Um, definitely, I think, allows them an opportunity to flesh out some of the interesting things. Um, one of the other things I just thought about during this call is uh, they mm-hmm. can get away from the gym structure, uh, which is, yes. which is you know, um, one of the things about the Pokemon games is there's eight gyms, which means there's eight towns. And so with this, they can really kind of lean into that wild area aesthetic if they don't necessarily have to have eight separate different towns that you are going to they can have probably again i'm just designing the game based on a two-minute trailer right now but you know they could have like of course we all do that yeah they they could have like a a single main hub city and then the whole game is based around exploration for that rather than what you've seen in every mainline pokemon game which is kind of past past town past town past town 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good point. Uh, because thinking about it, they have been experimenting a little bit with the gym structure. Uh, Sun and Moon had the islands and the kahunas. Sword and Shield had the gyms, of course, but those were more stadiums. Those were very much well, centered did you, on... Did you play the expansion pack at all to Sword and Shield? I did. Yeah, yes. they, they really pushed the boundaries of what it means to be kind of an open-world Pokemon game in, yes. the, in the second one especially. Um and, and again, I'm just I'm just kind of riffing here, but you know, Bowser's Fury, which just came out, is kind of that for Mario as well. Like, those are both kind of. Like, I still have to play that. Those are both kind of smaller expansion level, few hour type things, rather than full forty to sixty hour game experiences. But they're absolutely Nintendo doing some experiments on what does it mean to take our mainstream level based linear franchises and put them in an open world aesthetic and open world uh framework so i I think it's i think it's awesome i hope uh Mm -hmm. splatoon 3 does that too i want splatoon 3 to like be secretly open world (laughs) oh my god can you imagine that would be amazing oh yeah Uh, i love the idea of open world splatoon i'm looking forward to 3 because that was not a game i was expecting to be revealed and i'm happy it was no no not at all uh and something something i i think we we, uh talked about before this call was the fact that uh you know Platoon 3 coming out, we don't know much about it, but it has that that Mad Max Wasteland aesthetic to it. Uh-huh. Uh, Pokemon uh, Legends looking like Breath of the Wild, Breath of the Wild 2. Uh, Nintendo has all these kind of open world games or potentially open world games that they're leaning into. And I really wonder if 2022 is when we, we are going to finally see that Switch Pro, that beefed up Switch mm. that people are talking about because... From a game design perspective, it really feels like they're leaning into things that are pushing a little bit more than the Switch hardware can manage. Um, and people people were commenting that the frame rate and the pop-in looks a little bit chunky on Legends. And part of that might just yeah. be it's early in development, but part of that might also be it's being designed for a spec that we're not showing yet. <laughs> no, absolutely. I was wondering the same thing. Because I feel like the Switch Pro, as much as Nintendo says, nah, it's not happening, I feel like it's inevitable because they are doing, as you said, these these games that really challenge the hardware, which is certainly starting to show its age, and it was not exactly a powerhouse to begin with. We're never having a generation switch again like we have seen over the last 30 years. You know, PS4 to PS5, Xbox One to Xbox Series XS, Switch to Switch Pro is going to be the same thing. You are not going to throw your games away. You are not going to throw your form factor away. I, I can, you know, Nintendo may do something slightly different in the in the far future, but the Switch has been so massively successful for them. It's hard to, I saw something like the Switch has been out for like five years, six years, like an incredible amount of time. It feels like it just came out. Uh, it feels like it it's really just, does, doesn't it? It feels like it's just hitting its stride. So I know, still selling like like friggin' bananas, and just thinking about the Switch Pro. Uh, I think they could possibly. Well, I actually wonder if they can do that without really alienating their their entire fan base. I think about the new Nintendo 3DS and how that system had uh, exclusive that it can only be played. Uh, I think Xenoblade Chronicles was the main game, but there were still instances of where you had uh, games that could work on both. Uh, I think Hyrule Warriors was infamously really kind of chunky and slow on the original 3DS, but ran really well on the new 3DS. So I wonder if that's the kind of future we can expect for a Switch Pro, albeit maybe with a lot more support because the new 3DS was not supported that well. Yeah, I mean, the the new 3DS was always kind of a stopgap before the actual new system. I think 
you, what you do is you just slowly alienate your existing user base and make them <laughs> make them upgrade. <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, I hesitate to even think about it. The Cyberpunk 2077 will technically run, you know, on the original Xbox One that came out in, like, in 2013 or whatever. And bless its heart, you know, uh, that sounds like a good way to bring your home down. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, even Sony with like their Spider-Man games, like, yeah, they run on the base PS4, but they're so much better on the pro and they're so much better, better on the PS5. And so you're just kind of gradually kind of moving the, the window of, of doesn't run runs, but doesn't, well, this is where you should mm -hmm. be. And, and so, yeah. um, and again, Breath of the Wild 2 is one of the few games that's actually you can put it out there and people will, will sell systems. Also, it's absolutely it's practically a Nintendo tradition at this point for the new Zelda game to come out so late in the previous game's life cycle that it actually is a launch title for the next system. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty sound strategy. I mean, it worked really well for Twilight Princess. It worked extremely well for Breath of the Wild. So I could see that game ushering in a new... Uh, Switch Pro, and if I recall correctly, Anuma said we will find out more about Breath of the Wild 2 later this year, so maybe we're looking at a tandem announcement. That would be a very exciting day, I have to say that. That, yeah, that would be really great, and that would be a good way to some sugar to help the medicine go down about we're, we're hitting you up for a new system, but Breath of the Wild 2, so pretty. <laughs> so pretty. Well, I'm sold. That's for sure. Oh, Before we move on from Pokemon, I do want to mention one thing, which, which is you were talking sure. about how... Uh, they weren't your favorite and, and that some fans online are, are not responding well. I learned yesterday that the Japanese uh, derogatory term for the remakes is Pokemon Diaper <laughs> because it combines Diamond and Pearl. <laughs> That's amazing. Holy crap. I love that. Pokemon Diaper. How, do you have, like, I don't know how in tune you are with the Japanese side of the fan base, but how are they reacting to the 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 chibi look for the remakes? Um, I Honestly, I think that the Pretty similarly to the U.S., Pokemon is pretty global at this point. And so mm -hmm. you have the loud detractors. You have the people who say, who cares? It looks cute. And then I think you have the silent majority of Pokemon fans who are going to play it, capture 60% of the Pokemon, have fun, and move on to the next game. That's kind of it. You mentioned your your six-year-old niece, and I have uh, a... Daughter. Sorry, your six-year-old daughter. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm the one who's about to say, okay, I have a, uh, a six-year-old-ish I'm really bad with ages. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, nephew, who's huge into Pokemon. And I see all this vitriol being tossed around with the Pokemon fandom. I have to say, covering Sword and Shield in my 25 years of being online with a fandom, that was like probably one of the most miserable experiences I had was having to cover that game because the fan base was just the most toxic fan base I've ever interacted with. And it has such great people. And I'm not saying everyone's like that. There are some really amazing people in the Pokemon fan base. But the point is... You have this really loud, angry side, and that side makes me worry a little bit for the younger fans because my nephew doesn't care how, uh, you know, if the Pokemon Sinnoh remakes look exactly the way he pictured them to be. Obviously, he wasn't alive when it first happened. My daughter basically judges a Pokemon game by if the Pokemon she likes are in it or not. So, you know, she was... Exactly. We were watching the Pokemon Snap trailer, and she said, It's Grookey! Let's buy that game. <laughs> like, Aww. She, li she likes Grookey? Grookey is her favorite of the new starters, yeah. Her her all-time... Y'all better not laugh. Her all-time favorite Pokemon is Popleo. So she just loves Popleo. 
Aww, she that's is, okay. She, she, cute. she dressed up as Popplio a few years ago when we went to the Emerald City Comic Con uh, in Seattle, and she just cannot get enough of that sweet little seal child. Uh, does she like Primarina, or is she just all about Popplio? Oh, she likes Primarina, too. She, like, she likes them all. I think the fact that, uh, you know, Popplio is a cute little seal who grows up to be a beautiful princess Pokemon is... Uh, big plus when you're four. <laughs> I mean, every Pokemon is someone's favorite. And that's what I'm saying is that my nephew will look at this game and say, oh, cool, it has Pikachu. And he is part of that, as you said, silent majority who just buys the games, enjoys them, and captures 60% of the Pokemon and doesn't even bother with the online play very much unless maybe playing with his friends a little bit. Did you and Kat talk about that Japanese poll about who's your, their favorite Pokemon was to try to prove that every Pokemon was somebody's favorite. Yes. I think we did a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't, there were two, there were like two that weren't somebody's favorite, but 746 that were. <laughs> <laughs> so when people say like, Oh, Trubbish is terrible. Oh, Vanilla. Uh, it's like, no, they're actually, I've always said that, um, Pokemon has a lot of guts when it comes to its designs by making, giving us things like Trubbish and giving us things like Vanillux because, uh, when I reviewed mobile games, I reviewed countless, countless, countless Pokemon clones, and they always had cool monsters. Every single monster was cool, which is fine, but you never remembered who they are. I, I'm not going to forget who Clefkey is, the stupid ring of keys. I love him. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, Chandelier that's, thing. That's something I'm always talking about with the design teams that we're working with, which is you have to allow for a variety of player expression in your games. You have to allow for a variety of character aesthetics. Uh, if you lean into one thing where every person who plays our game is going to be a badass, then nobody's going to be a badass because the, exactly. the bar has been exactly. raised where everybody is wearing black on black on black and wielding seven <laughs> swords and shooting laser beams <laughs> out their feet. And it's just like, okay, that's the baseline now. It's not cool anymore. It's just stupid. You just have a game full of all these people doing that. And so you really, and, and the other thing too, something which I think Final Fantasy fourteen gets really, really well is that, you know, these games are methods of expression for people. And yes. so they are not afraid to lean into the goofy and the cute and the ridiculous and the anachronistic and the wild, um, in addition to the sexy and the cool. And and Pokemon, I think too, not through the avatars, but through the Pokemon designs themselves, is like Pokemon World encompasses multitudes. It does. It does. And it's like if my fa my personal favorite uh, Pokemon is Arcanine because he's just that perfect mix of like uh, a Mastiff and a Tiger and a Lion and he's just so cool and big and I love him so much. But if every Pokemon was as cool as Arcanine, then no nobody's cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so I shared my my daughter's favorite is Popplio. Mine is Jigglypuff. So I mean, <laughs> I, love, I love how cute he is and how angry he is. And also when I lived in Japan. Uh, my nickname was Pugin Jigglypuff by the students because I have a little curl, you know, in, in, on, the front, on the front. It's in the in the West, it's my Superman curl. In 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 the East, it's my Jigglypuff curl. <laughs> I, I love the the just the juxtaposition between Jigglypuff and Superman. Uh, I think Jigglypuff would win. I uh, know uh, he would definitely win because um, he's not afraid to fight dirty. And uh, hey, there you go. <laughs> Superman won't fight as dirty as the Jigglypuff. And my and my wife's favorite Pokemon is Farfetch. That's a I, I love Farfetch. And did she like um the upgraded Farfetch? Oh yeah. And Shield? Oh yeah, the one with the lance. So that that's yeah. Uh, I I can't remember his name offhand, but you know the one with the the. She's like, yeah, he's, he's gonna mess some pools up. 
you know, teach him a lesson. <laughs> that's, that's, that's her opinion that the duck with the leak is out for revenge. So <laughs> the duck with the leak, yeah, just try to cook this duck and his leak. It's not happening. So do you, try, do you, do you know the do you know where farfetch comes from? Like, do you know, the Japanese proverb? Yeah, something uh, a duck bearing a leak is like, kind of like when pigs will fly for us, right? Right, but it's also the idea that when you find a duck bearing a leak that you have soup ready to go. Like you don't have to go searching for all the mm-hmm. ingredients because he came with the vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Poor far-fetched. Uh, good for eating, but he's also very cute. Yeah, So, but yeah, no, I, I, it is great that there's so many different Pokemon. That, that I think is the strength of the franchise and something that annoying fans should learn to deal with that some things are not for them. <laughs> Pokemon is for everybody. And with that, we're going to move on to our next topic, which is all about the early days of internet fandom. And frankly, Pokemon is part of that, God knows. So stick around and don't go away. we are back to talk about ye olden days of online RPG fandom, something that Andrew and I are both quite well versed in. Let's start with you, Andrew. How did you get on the internet and start doing Squaresoft stuff? Um, so this is really going to, to age me, I guess. But before, we, <laughs> before the internet, I was involved in the local BDS scene in Dallas. Oh, me too. Uh, where I was at the time. So specifically... Um, there was a BBS that was focused around MIDI trading. It was a music-based BBS. Oh, beauty. Uh, and, and mods and S3Ns. Of and, course. And, and all these other things. But, um, you know, I was really into downloading digital music. I was really into Future Crew and uh, all the tracking that those guys did. And um, so, yeah, so I, I was involved there. And then I had a friend whose dad worked in IT, and he brought home a floppy disk that had Netscape Navigator 0.7 on it. Because, you know, you don't even think about this, but it's like, how do you bootstrap yourself onto the internet when your computer is not is not able to connect to the internet by default? And so um, he used that to get, on, uh, to get online. I took that and uh, connected to the internet using Netscape over... AOL, because AOL, you know, America Online was how I was connecting to the online world. Uh, and from there, I just kind of started using Gopher, using Archie, using, uh, and then eventually using uh, using FTP. Uh, you know, there were, mm-hmm. even before there were websites, there were uh, file transfer protocol sites, basically file shares for game facts and, and, uh, other sorts of things. Um, but then the web came along and you could have pictures and text and you could scroll the page. And, and that really became immediately obvious that this is, this is the new thing. This is the actual internet. Everything that was, everything that was there before, while cool and interesting and great for college students on a timeshare vax at their university or whatever, it's not, it's not the future. The ability to have a laid out audio visual representation of this virtual space is mm. is where we're all going to live going forward. That's <laughs> where we live now. This is yeah. the future. <laughs> Accept it. Yeah, my foray online is kind of similar. It sounds like you started a bit before I did. 
I want to say that my first time going online was in 1995, but going back a little bit further, I seem to recall a time when uh, I was visiting a friend and her father was connected to the internet for his work, like a Usenet group or something. And we went to a chat room and <laughs> we just started typing for Star Trek sucks <laughs> and just trolling these people. And they're like, you're not funny, you know? <laughs> so that was probably my first experience you were with the funny, internet. Though. Jokes on that. <laughs> I don't even know why we were talking Star Trek. I guess we seemed like, okay, what's the nerdiest thing we could think of? Star Trek. <laughs> you suck. So you, you, you mentioned Usenet. We should probably describe what that is for people who weren't there. Imagine, oh, of course. <laughs> imagine that the internet was so small, but there was only one forum, and everybody on the entire internet was <sighs> just one forum. That's Usenet. <laughs> God. I, I'm, my soul is pulling itself into a tiny ball in my mortal body. God. Um, but my real foray, I suppose, was... 1995, I went to a very technical school. It was a collegiate institute, which in Canada is uh, a high school that is a public high school that's specifically meant to train up kids for college and university. So we had uh, a good internet access. And someone uh, someone who ran the, the computer lab at the time came up to me and said, hey, you want to see something cool? So <laughs> that's she took me to the computer lab because they were looking for people to like learn how to use the internet. So I said, sure, I'll go for it. Big mistake. And eventually, I learned how to use our school's BBS because, yes, our school had a BBS. If you go to US Gamer uh, and look it up, I have a story about running that BBS or at least being part of that BBS and running a, a, a game community. And this was around the time that the Super Nintendo was transitioning to uh, this PlayStation, the N64. So it was a very tumultuous time full of angry people and uh, a lot of insults. And it was really great. And eventually, I got on the web from that BBS and uh, learned how to use email. I mentioned I found the Squaresoft homepage and I was part of a couple of message boards, I think maybe even on the Squaresoft homepage itself. But eventually I actually jumped onto the Mega Man X fandom, which I'm still <laughs> a part of uh, in a big, big way. Uh, it's uh, I'm probably going to die with it, so there you go. But just remembering the drama that came with those early internet forums, those early internet web pages. I don't know if you remember anything as stupid as this, Andrew, but one of the dumbest arguments I've ever seen in my life, and that's saying something, is how Chrono Trigger was a lazy hack compared to Final Fantasy VI and how Square was Square was losing its touch after creating the most beloved JRPG of all time. Like that was the kind of arguments we got online. The obnoxious fans have always been with us. Yeah, I absolutely remember Final Fantasy VI is a disappointment. Final Fantasy VII is a disappointment. <laughs> Look at it. It's so shiny and futuristic. Where's the fantasy? I thought it was Final Fantasy, not Final Sci-Fi. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, oh, God. I, we, I have to admit, I pushed that narrative quite a bit. We, we all, we've all done things we're not proud of in our past. Um, <laughs> we really have. No, but, but, but yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I even, even, even Chrono Trigger, at the time, was like, oh, the characters aren't as ex good as the characters in Final Fantasy. Chrono doesn't. Mm -hmm. Chrono doesn't talk. That means that this game isn't good because there's not actually character. I mean, it's hard to imagine people flagging on Chrono Trigger, but uh, trust me, they absolutely, they absolutely were. Uh, before we go on too further, I, I do want to put in a, a plug for something that is, I think, is really great for these sorts of discussions. Have you played Hypnospace mm -hmm. Outlaw? Gosh, I heard of it, but I have not played it. Hypnospace Outlaw is basically in mid to early, in an early to mid, a, a mid to late '90s internet simulator. 
So it's nice. It's basically the apex years of GeoCities as a visual novel adventure game of you kind of exploring around this weird internet that has its its fandom and its drama and its uh it, its craziness. And so I strongly recommend anybody who's like, what was it actually like back then? Um, to play to play that game and to play uh, Digital uh, Love Story by Christine Love for uh, to learn about BBSs because there are these visual novel games that I think really try to capture the spirit and the feeling of what it was like to be back there and and one of the things that you see in Hypnospace Outlaw that you just mentioned there too that I think is is so important to talk about the internet back then is mm-hmm. there were not these platforms. There were not these centralized platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, no. and Medium and, and stuff. You you had a blog if you had anything. And even before that, you had a, a page. And the page was yes. just where you posted what you liked. And you were like, welcome to my page. I like Sephiroth. I like <laughs> I like of Sound. My favorite book is Ender's Game. Oh no, I haven't learned about Orson Scott Card because <laughs> it's 1996. <laughs> um, oh, the innocent, the innocence. But but you 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 but you your, you know it, it was like a business card for you. You were trying to encapsulate right. yourself as a person, and in all your complexity, in 300 words and two inline gifs, and so. Um, but 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 that that weird personal feel. I think, you know, even my web page that I was running as a quote unquote professional web page, I was 15 when I launched this thing. Wow. I was not a professional. I was a kid who was trying to do my best to make something uh, that appealed to people. And it was weird and it was quirky and it was a combination of a gathering space for Squaresoft fandom, but also me being a sophomore in high school and thinking that I was super smart and wanting to be goofy on the internet to find other goofy people on the internet. Wow. Well, you are smart, man. You're a smart dude. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But uh, do you remember how you hosted that website? Uh, Because I had a Mega Man fan page that was two, you got two Megs on Tripod. I got, I got 10 Megs, baby. (laughs) Megabytes. Um, So many gifts. And I only got that because... Um, my father called our internet service provider and worked something out with them where I could get more than the default five. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, and, and eventually, ultimately, I was uh, hosted by my friend Andy Church. I don't know if that you remember that name at all. But he, oh, I do, actually. He ran a, a place called Dragonfire, which was basically like yes. GeoCities for RPG nerds. You know, he would give everybody 10 megs, 20 megs to build their own website hosted on his own machine at Carnegie Mellon um, University because, you know, he had a, a big pipe and space in his dorm room for a second computer. And so, uh-huh. he, and so he built a place for people to be on the Internet because that's how – because there was no cloud. There was hardly even co-location. There were people with servers hooked up to the Internet, you know, a box under the desk. Um, I did not know that about Dragonfire. That is fascinating because I actually was looking at the old logo for Dragonfire and appreciating its MS Paint glory. Oh, my gosh. No, Dragon. I once went, when I, I went on a college tour of Carnegie Mellon and got to meet Andy Church in, in person for the first time there. And we, and we, and we formed a, a friendship after that, uh, too. But I, I got to see Axel Dragonfire, and it was literally a bare board sitting on the floor with an oscillating fan pointing at it to keep it cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
was, gosh, my first my like site was hosted on Tripod, and I got two megs. And then because my site was popular, I got five megs for free. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm an internet master, man. Yeah, that, that, yeah. How did I get anything on that site? I don't know, but I did it. Everything was text. Everything was tiny gifts. Going to Final Fantasy for a second, I was talking to Kat in the last episode about, um, you of course know Final Fantasy, uh, the collections, anthology, and mm-hmm. I can't remember the other one with a really terrible Chrono Trigger port. Origins? But though, yeah, yeah. Those came out late 90s, and I just remember the the cinemas for them. Were, were so incredible that the cinemas that opened up the, the collections. And I remember downloading them on my school's computer, same high school. And, of course, you didn't have YouTube or anything like that. You didn't have anyone hosting this stuff. You just had to download this, like, 30-meg video that looked like a postage stamp. And just I remember all of my, like, schoolmates just kind of hovering around this computer watching the uh, the Final Fantasy VI opening and just uh, interrogating to that Magitek armor stuff, which was actually pretty damn cool for the time. Yeah, no, it, it's it's crazy because there was no YouTube, there was no standard for how video was transferred on the internet, and so QuickTime, uh, Apple's mm. uh, QuickTime format was kind of a de facto standard, um, and and yeah, your videos um, were like a hundred pixels by eighty pixels, so that they would be uh, one point five megs and take up you know less of the thirty megabytes that you have managed to extract from your provider at the time or whatnot. Um, uh, you know, a, a little bit, a little bit later on, um, one of the things uh, I, I ran a website called the gaming intelligence agency, uh, which, was, yes. which was also focused on Japanese RPGs. Uh, and one of the things I was really proud of there is we had kind of a feature where we would post uh, Japanese game commercials um, for oh, um, right. that were airing on Japan. And, and literally the reason, the reason we were able to do that is because I had a friend who lived in Japan at the time who was really into Japanese music. And he would basically have a DVR running 24-7 on the music channel to capture all the music videos for the, the J-pop music and, and J-rock music video distribution scene. Um, and so he would just happen to capture all the commercials while he was doing this. And he was like, hey, do you guys want the commercials? And so we said, sure. And we took them and we post- converted them and we posted them. And we were the only place on the Internet you could see these commercials because they did not exist anywhere else because video was so hard to do. <laughs> video was like just the the holy grail. It was, uh, for one thing, a lot of us were still on dial-up back then. And I remember trying to download the opening cinemas for Mega Man X3 back when it came to the PlayStation had some additional anime. Mega Man X4, of course, Mega Man 8. And just praying to God that my dad didn't pick up the phone or something and ruin the whole thing because that was an all-day download. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you would... I it's, it's hard to imagine, like, I'm going to spend 45 minutes downloading a three-and-a-half-minute movie trailer so that I can watch it but that's where we all were when the force awakens came out in 1998 <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh god yeah it's just so so bizarre to think about now and just how just how much every, the internet was do it yourself back then uh, as you said like your friend capturing these these japanese commercials and sending them over and there was a lot of just ingenuity going on back then yeah i mean we we did not have um you know i think uh, my my first website, the unofficial Squaresoft homepage was made in Notepad. And then it was made Beauty. in a tool called Dreamweaver, which is basically like I remember. 
like notepad only it makes the tags color <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh for the gia we wrote some scripts actually in c c plus plus code that would automatically generate html <laughs> which is wow a, which is a hack on top of a hack but it was like there was no wordpress there was no such thing as mm -hmm. a cms or there was like, no WYSIWYG. there was no squarespace there was no you know yeah you you got the ability to serve files to people over HTTP and the rest, mm -hmm. and the rest is up to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to pretend it was better in the olden days, but it no, was, but certainly it was, not. it was, it's funny. Like, like it was the wild west. It was the unexplored frontier in a way that you, even if you knew that at the time, you didn't feel it. And it's like, looking back now, you can feel it. Looking back now, you can feel just how few guardrails there were, how little help you were able to get to get yourself online. You had to, you had to be a certain type of person to get online at all to make something and share it with people. You had to have the kind of exactly. personality, which is like, like, by God, I'm going to do this come hell or high water, because it was not easy. It was work. It was. And even when you got online, this was a, a big problem. Uh, rumors were a huge, a huge problem because there was no way to really quickly verify any kind of information. So you probably remember 10,000 quote unquote guides about how to revive Leo from Final Fantasy VI, how to revive Aerith, of course, was a I big one, still is a I'm big gonna, one. I'm going to mention at this time one of the most embarrassing things I've ever written that is still online if you look for it is this paean to Aerith that I wrote about Aww. how wonderful and noble her death is and that to bring her back <laughs> would be to undo her sacrifice. And, you know, I, I was quoting Shakespeare Aww. and Wordsworth and uh, I was just like, you know, really pushing my high school English uh, education to its limit here, like trying to convince you of the, the moral rightness of letting the dead stay dead. <laughs> I, I love. I am totally down with that. Please tell me you still have it. Oh, it's it's around. I'll find it. I'll send it to you. So. Oh, that that is just beautiful. I, I my heart is stirring at the very thought. That was the kind of stuff we wrote back then. I guess because we were just so enamored with, with how video games are telling these deeper and deeper stories and really kind of, really kind of giving us reason to think. And it all looks a little bit silly when you look back at it now. But back then, it was so important. Oh yeah. Well, what's what I think is interesting too is. We, or at least I, know a lot more about how video games are in, uh, are, are made. And, and how video games are made is that you have a design doc and then you throw away like 80% of the design doc and 20% <laughs> of that actually gets implemented. So I have a much better understanding of like cut content and things that are on the disc that are not actually mm -hmm. implemented now. It, it simply means that you had an idea two years ago that ended up not being the idea that you wanted to to go with when you when you shipped. And so, um, just talking about Aerith again, you know, things like the underwater materia that allowed you to walk on the ocean floor, the ability yes. to debug in the white materia. Why does she have a level four limit break if she leaves your party so early in the game? Yada yada. And and this it's looking for meaning and patterns when the answer is just, oh, we thought about doing this and then we didn't. <laughs> and, yeah. and we just never no, exactly. and we just never deleted it because everything you do is visible as a digital record to hackers who go in on the disk and take a look. No, absolutely. And uh of course, you know a lot more about game development than I do. Uh but I think generally people have a little bit more understanding of what, you know, how much data just just gets unused and ends up on 
the titular cutting room floor. So we have, I feel like there's, there's far less rumors about how to revive someone and all the hints are there, even though, even though you think the hints are there, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, leftover ghost data. So I think we understand that a little better now, but back then it's like, oh God, was I ever looking for the, that rumored shadow dream in Final Fantasy VI that was supposed to tie everything together? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, like by Final Fantasy VII, I was like, accept it. But like for Final Fantasy VI, I was like, General Leo must live. Like, General Leo must be alive somewhere. Look, his sprite is in the game. He has all these. He look at these attacks he has. Yeah, ex exactly. Just geez, nope, nope. So I do love. I do love Leo. I mean, that's one of the. I mean, I guess we see this nowadays too with things like the MCU or stuff. But like General Leo was one of those characters who you know shows up in the game for five minutes and you know has probably fewer than twenty lines or whatever, and everybody's like. I love General Leo. I want to have General Leo's babies. <laughs> I General Leo is the best, uh, et cetera. And and like there was it was but it, one of the things which I think was really fun about this era was kind of the first inklings of this sort of communal fandom, which you yes. just had not really seen before. That you could think something about a character in a game and then find out that there were other people who thought the same thing too. And then you get into this positive feedback loop where you, you just are like, ah, 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 yeah, fanboying out, fanboying <laughs> out over, over general Leo uh, and over frog and chrono trigger. And, 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 you know, this, this is before memes, I guess. Yes. <laughs> if you can imagine such a thing, I'm just going to say, if you can imagine such a thing, I can barely, I can barely remember such a thing. Yeah. But, but you know, the, the idea that like, like, I think like, Frog is the coolest character. It's kind of like a meme. Like, you know, Frog is cool, but like definitely like they're people I think were felt inspired in Chrono Trigger to like really lay it on thick about how he's the best in part because he's so dorky and, and, and hilarious. It kind of ties into something else that was important about that era is nowadays we really take it for granted how even though there is still that language barrier, we can talk to Japanese developers. We can get their thoughts, their feelings, and their inspirations. And uh, we get a lot more in the way of supplementary information on the characters that we love. Back then, there was we had no access to, to, to this stuff. Like we would see mysterious Japanese texts and no one could read them. But people would just invent things. Like I remember specifically uh, when I was in the Mega Man X fandom, some guy just would, would like say, I translated the source book for for. Mega Man X3 and make up complete lies about the characters and these would all be adopted as canon because as far as we understood he was God because he he understood Japanese or said he did and just those those links to the the Japanese fandom were God they were like prophets back then yeah I can't I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example and I can't but there were absolutely instances of fandom where somebody who did not speak Japanese would say something that then kind of became accepted communal lore for the next just like four to five years until like around 2002, 2003, when more people who actually spoke Japanese started to enter the fandom. It would explain that everything that we had been believing for the, oh, oh I, I guess a good example um, would be that X-Death in Final Fantasy V. Like there right. was this, this talk that's like, oh, his name is short for exceeding death. Like that's not in the game anywhere. Like that is that is that is not true. Um, but it was absolutely like, oh yeah, X death is short for exceeding death. Like like that was. Um, who 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 are you to tell him otherwise? We're we're all just going exactly. To pass, we are just going to pass this around. It's that was, uh, gosh, that was something that happened a lot 
because this is something I brought up in my interview with Ted Wolsey, who, of course, was the translator for many beloved Squaresoft RPGs, particularly Final I, Fantasy I love VI. Ted. He's a good translator and a good guy. I don't know if he needs a defense squad, but I feel like there was a part of the fandom that continually gave him a completely unwarranted bad rap. Like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He told me as much, said there were people who just like were angry at him, came after him, and he's like, I, he, he often took the blame for censorship in, say, Final Fantasy VI, which was absolutely not his fault. He was going by Nintendo's standards, number one. Number two, he had a lot to battle with in terms of space in the cartridge. Yeah. The Japanese is a very compact language. English is not. So he had to make a lot of cuts. And uh, people just kind of blamed him for, for, for these things that happened, even though, in my mind, he's a genius for telling a story about an apocalypse, even though he couldn't use the word die. The, the other thing, too, something that we take for granted in fan translation nowadays is that uh, you, you just blow out the ram cart size uh, to make more yes. space for the English translation. That technique was not actually invented until, like, the early 2000s. So, yes. um, and also at the time there, we, we don't talk about this that much, but, like, RPGs were, like, $85, $100 in, like, yeah, 1995 yeah, easy. money. And that was because the RAM cards were so big, because you were paying, you know, an extra 20 to $25 per 8 megs of RAM. So even if you had the technical know-how at the time to blow out Final Fantasy VI by another 8 megs, you're also tacking on another 20 bucks to the price. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like real money on your balance sheet that you can't uh, get away from either eating the cost or passing on to the consumer. Um, and so... Exactly. And yeah, like there's... Not only did Ted do good work and creative work, he did it in a time period where the constraints were so severe. And 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 again, he did not get a, a, an XLIF file, uh, you know, a, a translation, a localization interchange file format uh, with metadata and speaker data and conversation mm -hmm. order and you know annotations no. about what quest lines and flags have to be triggered in order for these events. He got a bunch of assembly codes and <laughs> he two, did a, a bunch of assembly code in two months. Like that's what he was getting. Yes. <laughs> and, and no context. He said he sometimes he'd get a VHS video or something like that, but generally he was working without context, which is why admittedly some of the text in, in Final Fantasy VI is a, is a little bit, okay, that's a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the thing that ties into Ted Woolsey, I think, in fandom is how people would say, oh, Final Fantasy VI got censored. Okay, absolutely true. But then they make shit up, like uh, some so and so strips and and does this naked dance, and, and then Nintendo is sissies and they cut it out. They took out. I remember now. They took out Cell's lap dance. How how dare they? So they they took out. Uh, I remember now. Final Fantasy IV supposedly like some. Oh, the dancer. Was saying, this the dancer. dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She strips naked, and it's like she doesn't, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> she, and if she did, you couldn't see because the, the sprites were so squishy. They don't look like anything underneath. You can't really see their dongers flapping in the wind. It's just uh, there's nothing there. But that was the kind of stuff people made up. They just like, as you said, uh, just to make – it was an era where people were really, really trying to make Japan seem super hardcore. That was when also you would have the translations for like uh, Cyber City and it was just swear words up and down, which to be fair is actually really hilarious. I actually love the translation for that. For that. <laughs> have you ever seen the translated version of Cyber City? I, I, not in particular, but I, I guess I know the like the fucking fan sub trope of 
of like we're going to just prove how like we're just going to add extra flares into our into our language. Oh, absolutely. Um... Do you know Do you know Heidi? Do you know Zero Chan online? Oh yeah. I'm okay. Friends. I haven't talked to her in a while, but we're friends. Okay. She just posted something early uh, earlier last week, which which was like, I wish that people knew that how many of the changes that were made to their favorite game titles were made for economic reasons and not for mm -hmm. and not for reasons of moral turpitude uh you know that that everyone is trying to do the best they can within the framework of the esrb within the framework of actual american laws and regulations within the framework yes. of you are responsible for your game being financially successful to your management or you will no longer have a job and you know it, it's very easy not easy but you know it's it, it, fan translators and people who are being paid to do this full time are under a very different set of constraints in terms of what they can and cannot do in the titles that they publish. Absolutely. As someone who was doing her first localization project, I'm slowly learning that and uh, thinking about what Ted Woolsey had to go through, because at least I have things like context. And I, if I have a question, uh, the producer is right there and I could talk to them. But uh, gosh, the people who did translation back then are heroes. But Fan translations, those are a whole different thing. Like, uh, of course, Clyde Mandelin, uh, Tomato, mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he's brilliant. If you ever, of course, you know Legends of Legend, uh, as yeah. well as anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm actually really, really enthralled with his Final Fantasy IV breakdown, which compares the Japanese translation to the SNES translation to the, I guess, the Game Boy Advance translation, which was a lot better. And finally, the fan translation that was out at the time was adding things like uh, Kane calling Rosa a whore and other stuff that wouldn't happen. <laughs> Speaking of fucking translations, so no, I I love that Final Fantasy Four is Final Fantasy Two. You know, is maybe my favorite game of all time. So certainly, oh, yeah. certainly, it dropped at a time in my life where it it had just a huge impact on me, and 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 it's also one of those games which has been translated like seven times but i'm like maybe yes. i should do it maybe i should go back and translate final fantasy 2 so it's actually done correctly this time i i oh. will i will fix i'm i'm not going to i'm not going to but but, <laughs> but, but 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 definitely even even reading you know i've been reading the same thing that clyde's doing comparing all the different translations and i'm like i'm like there's a there's still a better way nobody's quite gotten it yet you know i like i like bits and pieces of each of these different translations but the way that i would approach final fantasy mm -hmm. 4 is you know, would be in, in between uh, all of these, uh, all of these different ones right here. I, I think the last thing the world needs is another Final Fantasy IV translation, but I think it is fascinating and interesting to see. I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting about Final Fantasy IV is, uh, you know, it was released in like 1991 and then re-released in like early 2000s and then re-released on Game Boy in like the mid 2000s and then re-released on PC in like, or no, 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 there was the DS version in like the yes. early 2010s, et cetera, et cetera. But you can kind of see the evolution of localization style over the course of one game because it's the same game and right. the same story and the same characters, which is being approached, I say by the same company, you know, it's different people within the company, but what their philosophy towards localization was and kind of what larger industry trends about localization were at each time uh, that the game, kind of, you know, sometimes there's more mm -hmm. memes than other times. Sometimes everybody's really writing George R. R. Martin's jockstrap, even when it's not totally appropriate <laughs> for the, the game style. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's just kind of like, I actually think the original, uh, by the way, it's not Ted Woolsey. I see it attributed to him a lot. 
the original Super Nintendo translation of Final Fantasy II, I find it charming and endearing. I think that they, you know, it's kind of janky mm-hmm. and, and weird in some parts, but it was gone over by an editor before publication, uh-huh. as, as I think we, we've seen some pre-release stuff, so you can kind of tell the difference between pre-editing yes. and post-editing. Um, and it does have a weird kind of poetry to the fact that it's so janky, <laughs> but but janky <laughs> in an edited and thoughtful way. But it it it. it uh, I, 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 I really like the, the tone of that, of that first translation, um, you know, especially things like the translation of the big whale, uh, poem and such, yes. uh, just because it, it has this weird sort of otherworldliness to the text by virtue of it being translated by a, a non-native speaker of English and then edited by an, a native speaker of English before publication. Yeah. I feel like the Misadian legend never was improved upon after the first translation. Yeah, the, 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 the big whale legend is kind of what I'm, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. The, the opening scroll, I think, is better in the first one, too. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't want to get completely derailed into comparing different Final Fantasy IV translations because I'm about to, like, pull up some examples right here. So let's, let's move along. But um, <laughs> I do, I, I want to do an episode about Final Fantasy IV translations, man, because I'll sit here and talk about it for two hours. I don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah, book, book, book me. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but actually, we're actually getting a little bit low on time here. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation and this 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 retreat back into memory lane. Uh, did you want to share any final thoughts about the Internet back then versus the Internet now and maybe what's good and what's bad versus? I mean, what, what I think is so great about the Internet now is it is easier for people to get online, which means that you have more diversity of opinions, more more diversity of people to talk with, um, just in terms of like, it was very homogenous who you saw back then. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think it was a golden age. I, I think it was mm-hmm. a fascinating age. And I'm so happy yes. to have, and I'm so happy to have been there. And it was so much fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was something, all right. You know, I, 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 what I, what I miss about that old internet and, and what I, wish we had more of nowadays was that sense of personal ownership and personal space. Right. Um, Absolutely. I feel like, you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, you are creating content for Facebook and Twitter. And and on the old internet, you were creating content for yourself and for, and yes. for the people who read it. it, it, and, it and it was much more a uh, direct connection uh, to your, your audience slash friends. You know, it was it was small enough that you really felt like you knew everybody out there. I think I think you could have fit everybody mm-hmm. who was a Final Fantasy fan in 1995 in a medium sized Denny's. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, the Grand Slam and then talk about Kefka. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, that 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 reminds me actually the first audio file I ever published on my website was Kefka's laugh. So really. Yeah. Oh, what a way to what a baptism! I know it was, it, my, my, it was Andy Church captured it uh, and and sent it over to me, uh, and and it was like now you can download Kafka's laugh and use it as an error sound in Windows ninety five. Yeah, I have a really bad memory of uh, using my computer at school, and someone jacked up the volume, and and of course back then audio files played willy nilly like just on people's pages, and there was no way to turn them off. And for, I was visiting a page that had. Lavos's scream, and that just reverberated throughout oh the whole lab. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Everyone just kind of looked at me. I think I think you might be seeing this a little bit with things like Discord. Like I like this return to smaller, tighter knit communities. I like yes. I like people saying I'm not going to be friends with ten thousand people. Like I'm going to pick because I mean I forget the name of the, the the number, but you know like people can only keep so many social networks. Yeah, the, the monkey sphere. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that, that that's a good way to to think of it. And so. I love, and, and, I, and I've seen this during the pandemic a lot as people are having to socialize online. They're looking for actual social interaction online again, as opposed to just kind of shouting into the sphere. And so I've seen this uptick in smaller Zoom calls with their seven friends or with joining discords with like, you know, 50 to 100 people on them. And so mm -hmm. um, that, that, is the, that, that is the thing which I think, no matter how many people are on the internet, focusing on those smaller social networks and, and actual connections to people would, would be something that I'd like to see come back again. And, and, I, and I think we actually are starting to see that as people realize that Facebook and Twitter are not tools for communication. They're tools for driving yourself insane and or destroying democracy. Basically, and for just uh, screaming into the void, hopefully in, in hopes of chasing a bit of clout. <laughs> yeah, but ever since clout shut down, it's not real. So what's the point if you can't get free cat food? <laughs> <laughs> there is no point without the free cat food. And with that, uh, we are going to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so very much, Andrew, for having that with me. That was a nice little foray down into memory lane. That's been a pleasure. And stick around because we are still going to do the track of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back. It is time for the track of the week because, as we all know, RPG music rules. And it really defines the games that we enjoy. So since everything is all Pokemon this week, I decided to choose a Pokemon song. Sit down, settle back, and see if you can recognize this tune. Yes, that is the Gym Leader Battle Tune from Pokemon X and Y, which, in my opinion, is the most underrated Pokemon song in the entire world. It is just this really cool techno, and I'm saying more techno with Pokemon. Thank you very much. Uh, let's have this in Pokemon Legends. Let's put lots of techno in Pokemon Legends. Actually, I mean, I, we, we've only seen that trailer, but I do wonder if we're going to see some traditional instrumentation or live instrumentation in Pokemon Legends. Uh, I noticed. You know, I, th I think I think it'll be that'll be really cool. So I love the, the techno music in Pokemon. My my daughter, I have this amazing video of Sword Shield of her just jumping up and down on a trampoline during a gym battle, head banging because she's just like <laughs> so pumped up by the gym battle music. Um, but but that's what it's designed to do. Like it's not just techno music. It's like get crunk in the club, like like pound a Red Bull vodka and get out there and head bang music and and that's that's the kind of attitude we need to be bringing into 2021 no 100% and now that you mention it yeah the gym battle theme for sword and shield was, was pretty tight as I recall yeah it, it does a good job of capturing that like arena feel because you know the, yes you know like I'm I'm not so much sold on the Gigantamax mechanic but I'm absolutely sold on the fact that sword shield makes gym battles feel like 
big public battles that are a professional sport that everybody is super into and like it does have that sort of soccer anthem like you know mm -hmm. everybody going whoa shouting up and down yeah like chanting yeah 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 one of my favorite memes is uh, someone who's in a house trying to sleep next to a Pokemon arena and you just hear the music <laughs> thumping and you slowly see like the Gigantamax Pokemon tower over <laughs> the arena while this person is just like trying to get a little bit of sleep. It's like double paint windows are so important in the Galar region. <laughs> They'll still shake though. This theme and uh, the stadium theme were both composed by Junichi Masuda, uh, one of the, gosh, he's like, practically the Pokemon franchise personified. He's been with the franchise almost since day one. He's been with Game Freak since day one, actually. And yeah, he's a director, he's a programmer, he's a designer, and he is a composer. And I actually, I know that some people don't like this this gym leader theme from X and Y, but man, I just I just adore it. It's one of my favorite memories actually of playing Pokemon was I was playing Pokemon uh, X and Y, and I was just kind of in my bedroom, and it was dark, and like I was going up against the the, the stone, sorry, the the rock leader, I think his name was Grant, and just this music was going, and it was just, oh man, I'm so pumped up, I want to kick this guy's ass. And I did, because it's really not that hard to kick a gym leader's ass. I know I know. I mentioned earlier, with, with love and respect, Pokemon is for kids, but I think that one of the things, like, this music is not subtle, but I think that's what makes it so no. great, you know? Like, it is designed to tap into those primal, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, vibes that you have as, as a kid getting like when there's nothing cooler than Pikachu, use Thunderbolt. Uh, and so, um, no, I, I, I love it. And like, I love the whole kind of like weird techno vibe that uh, Pokemon has in general. Uh, and, and like, Pokemon is sci fi. Like, they don't, people mm -hmm. don't talk about that a lot because the focus is on the weird creatures and the battling. But it's also a very unusual world at a very high level of technology. <laughs> yes. It, it's, a, it's a world where Pokemon make things run, like, like turn spit dogs in the, <laughs> the use in the Victorian era. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God, that is so disturbing. I'm sorry. But maybe it's true. Is that more, anyway, or, less, is that more or less disturbing than marrying a Pokemon? We'll find out, won't we? I'm, I'm telling you, Nintendo better not back down on this. We better—they're cowards if they—they <laughs> they don't give us people marrying Pokemon. Well, you know, Game, game Freak knows what the fans want. Uh, I have to say, Game Freak is a little bit uh, okay. Even though we said Pokemon is for kids, it absolutely is. Game Freak knows we're out there, and we're a bunch of horny adults. Like, I mean, don't look at Melanie and tell me they didn't know what they were doing. Pokemon is. Yeah, let's just let's just be honest. Pokemon is the horniest kid show ever made. It really is, and it's like you know what? I'm when, when you're talking about a genre where nobody's over twenty, because God forbid. I love the fact Pokemon's like, hey, you like milfs? We got one over here. You like dilfs? Uh, you like silver silver nine tails? Look at the guy from uh, who does the fire gym in uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield. He's pretty hot. They have to figure out a way to to make you buy both variants even after you turn forty. So yeah, exactly, and. Uh, when you look at Melanie, well, it kind of succeeded, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I want to hug her. I want to just dive into her and give, and hug her. I love Melanie so much. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna cut all uh, that, right? That's not being published, right? <laughs> no, no. Everybody who who listens to this show knows what I'm about. I think I'm the one who who's infamous for. Well, I'm I'm sure the story has been told before, so I'm sorry, but. We were covering E3, whatever. Some of us were at the show. Some of us were at home. I was at home. 
Mike and Eric were covering the show and they were actually looking at the presentation for Shadowbringers. And we were typing to each other across um, Slack and I wrote, uh, raise his hand in audience, but can you raw dog a dragoon? <laughs> and apparently Mike lost his mind, like <laughs> according to Eric. So, oh my God. I mean, it was, an, it was a valid question, I think. Uh, come on. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't raw dog a dragoon. If Square can figure out a way to monetize the in-game brothels, Final Fantasy XIV can run for another 10 years easy. There are a lot of brothels, not just from the fans in Final Fantasy XIV, but there's a lot of Mikote who, like, just kind of ply their services, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's the invisible hand of the free market providing what players demand. Absolutely. And with with that wholesome, wholesome discussion, we are done for the week thank you so very much to andrew for joining us and uh just to wrap things up a little bit again we are a patreon sponsored podcast if you would kindly join us at patreon.com forward slash blood god pod we would love to have your support you can find me at nadia oxford on twitter you can find catbot at the underscore catbot uh Please do stay tuned for future episodes. I mean, we got a whole lot of stuff going on. We got a new television of the Blood God coming out eventually. We got a new Pantheon of the Blood God coming out. Voting has started on the next Pantheon, and um, I cannot access the poll because I don't have the password for the Patreon right now. So I can't tell you who's winning for the next Pantheon of the Blood God. But if you are at the uh, $10 or above level, you can vote on the next contender, and you can see what is going on because I am an ignorant idiot who misplaced her password. <sighs> Thank you so much again for joining us. Please do continue to support us. Until next time, for Cat, Andrew, and myself, happy adventuring.